if you're new here, we are doing a new series, uh, which we're already about halfway into now. I believe we've done Joseph at this point, and we've also done the Magi last week. And so there's a lot of really positive characters in the Christmas story. Right? Obviously, you have Joseph, the Magi, Jesus, of course, Mary. But for me personally, I feel like every good story needs a good villain. Amen? And that's why I, I feel like I enjoy the Avengers series so much. Thanos is a good villain. Right? Sometimes you get villains who don't really have too much depth. You know, not really a motivation, not really a reason for what they do. It's not really uh, explored too deeply. But Thanos is, and also Herod is as well. Herod is a complex, complex villain. So, Herod the Great. If you have your Bibles, you can open up to Matthew chapter 2. Give you guys a second to find Matthew. It's one of those random books. <laughs> Not really. Uh, we'll be starting in verse 1. It says, After Jesus was born in Bethlehem in Judea, during the time of King Herod, Magi from the east came to Jerusalem and asked, Where is the one who has been born King of the Jews? We saw his star when it rose and have, and have come to worship him. When King Herod heard this, he was disturbed, and all Jerusalem with him. When he, had, when he had called together all the people's chief priests and teachers of the law, he asked them where the, where the Messiah was to be born. In Bethlehem in Judea, they replied, for this is what the, prophets, the prophet has written. But you, Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are by no means least among the rulers of Judah. For out of you will come a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. When Herod called the Magi, then Herod called the Magi secretly and found out from them the exact time the star had appeared. He sent them to Bethlehem and said, Go and search carefully for the child. As soon as you find him, report to me, so that I too may go and worship him. After they had heard the king, they went on their way, and the star they had seen when it rose went ahead of them until it stopped over the place where the child was. When they saw the star, they were overjoyed. On coming to the house, they saw the child with his mother Mary, and they bowed down and worshipped him. Then they opened their treasures and presented him with gifts of gold, frankincense, and myrrh. And having, having been warned in a dream not to go back to Herod, they returned to their country by another, another route. When they had gone, an angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph in a dream. Get up, he said. Take the child and his mother and escape to Egypt. Stay there until I tell you, for Herod is going to search for the child to kill him. So he got up, took the child and his mother during the night and left for Egypt where he stayed until the death of Herod. And so was fulfilled and so was fulfilled what the Lord has said through the prophet, out of Egypt I called my son. Now when Herod realized that he had been outwitted by the Magi, he was furious. And he gave orders to kill all the boys in Bethlehem and its vicinity who were two years old and under, in accordance with the time he had learned, about, learned from the Magi. Then what was said through the prophets, Jeremiah was fulfilled. A voice is heard in Ramah, Weeping and great mourning, Rachel weeping for her children and refusing to be comforted because they are no more. How about we have a quick prayer and then we can unpack the character of Herod. Heavenly Father, I just pray that today we can have open hearts, Lord, open minds uh, and receive your words. I pray, Lord, uh, as we learn about Herod, we can take his example, even though it's a negative example, but we can take some positive 
uh, lessons from it and apply it to our everyday life, Lord. Uh, I pray, Lord, uh, yeah, your hand is just over me as, as, as I'm preaching your word. I can translate it accurately. And I pray everyone here just can be filled uh, with the good news and the truth which your word offers. I pray this in your precious name. Amen. Sorry. Oh, a little bit early. King Herod, okay? He, he, he's an interesting character. Very ambitious. That's where he gets the great from. He's, his greatness is through his ambition. And ironically, his ambition is part of his rise, but it's also part of his demise. King Herod is somebody who is a political elite, right? A religious elite as well. Somebody who is well-known throughout the land for sometimes negative reasons, but there is a positive aspect to Herod's character, right? He, he is somebody who is a di diplomatic genius. I mean, his role was to keep the peace between Jerusalem and Rome because he wasn't a normal king, right? He was not actually a king. He was a client king. By that, I mean, he, he was appointed by Rome to oversee Judea. It's kind of like if you have kids, you leave your oldest child at home uh, with the younger one, you, you, leave, you leave your oldest child in charge. They're in charge, but not really in charge. Right? You're, you're still in charge. Same thing is true with Herod. Right? King Herod the Great. And it's important to know this because it does explain a little bit of his insecurity when it comes to power. And we see this pop up again and again in this passage that he has an issue with authority. And this helps explain it. His entire reign, he's under the thumb of somebody else. And so with that in mind, it's, it's actually very little surprise that his heart has such a posture of rebellion against God, the ultimate authority. And so I have uh, a couple of points here, only two points. The first point is focused on Herod and his response to Jesus. And the, the second point I have is actually more centered around uh, the religious leaders who are surrounding Herod. Yes, there's two different perspectives, but the hearts behind those perspectives are very, very similar. Yeah? The hearts of rebellion. I should probably just look that up. It makes more sense. All right, so the first one, the first one I have here is how Herod responds, is that Herod views Jesus as opposition to his position. Opposition to his position. And the religious leaders have indifference to Jesus' existence. They might seem a little bit different, but trust me, we'll get there. They are very similar when it comes down to the heart. So the first point, guys, is opposition to his position. Now, like I mentioned earlier, Herod is a complex character. He does some atrocious acts throughout his reign, and we'll look at that in a moment. But there is an aspect of Herod which is kind of positive, at least on paper. Herod is somebody who is, you know, partly a Jew, right, ruling over Judea. Right? He is somebody who actually rebuilds the temple in Jerusalem. I mean, if you, if you want a religious act, that's a good one, right? Rebuilding a temple, right? And he's someone who, who surrounds himself with some of the most spiritually, religiously orientated people you could possibly get. He's, on the surface, he projects an image of someone who's quite religious. You, you could be mistaken if you haven't looked into his character too much or think, okay, maybe Herod's an okay guy. Of course, he murders a whole bunch of infant children. Spoiler, he's not an okay guy. 
But on the surface, that's how it seems. And this is really epitomized in verse 8. Because it says there, Go and search carefully for the child. As soon as you find him, report to me, so that I too may go and worship him. And does Herod want to go and worship Jesus? No. He has the complete opposite intentions. Instead of worship, he's out to destroy Jesus. And that's part of the contrast between the exterior which Herod projects, you know, the great temple rebuilder, and the heart inside, which is much, much, much worse. His heart is in a, a dangerous spot. And reading this, I, I, I do think of there's a common theme in the Bible of how God examines the heart above all else. We, we, as Christians, we can get in the habit of doing the religious thing, building our identity on how often we go to church, how much we read the Bible, and how many quiet times we do, how often we pray. All right? But we got to understand, that image we project might not always coincide nicely with our heart behind it. I have this really cool quote here. Oop, I'll skip to the next slide. Where it talks about... Oh, it, it's a great book. It's, it's called A Tale of Three Kings. And the reason I chose it is because it, it, it connects nicely to our other series on uh, 1 Samuel. It's by Gene Edwards. And it says here, As surely as the sun rises, people's hearts will be tested. Despite the many claims, the counterclaims, the hidden motives within the heart of all who are involved will be revealed. This might, not, this, might not be, this might not seem important to, in the eyes of man, but in the eyes of God, such things are central. The motives of the heart will eventually be revealed. God will see to it. The motives of the heart. Don't get caught up in the actions. Right? If you're focused on the actions, you'll look at Herod and you'll think, oh, I've never murdered a bunch of infants. I hope, hopefully. All right? Or you may look, okay, I've never done this atrocity, I've never done that. But the reality, the heart behind Herod and his actions are very relatable to us. It's a heart of insecurity, a heart of fear, and a heart of rebellion. So keep that in mind. So what, what kind of heart causes a man to murder helpless children? That's a, that's a challenging question. But ultimately, it's not very surprising when you consider Herod's past. Herod and his entire reign is stained with blood of his enemies. He, he's not, this is not out of character for Herod. This is actually very within character for Herod. He has some extremely gruesome and cruel acts under his belt, at this point at least. And one of the most famous ones is on his deathbed. So right at the end of his reign. He's aware that people don't really like him. He's been murdering people for some decades now. And so he's, people in the land, even his own subjects, are not a fan of him. And so he's fearful that these people are going to celebrate him dying. And can you imagine that? People celebrating, rejoicing when you die? Oof. And that's exactly how Herod felt. Oof. And so his master plan... Purely out of spite, purely out of bloodlust, he gathers all the religious, the Jewish leaders, sorry, uh, in, in the land of Judea, and he has them cap captive below his palace. Why? 
So that upon him dying, he can have all those Jewish leaders executed. Whew. Yes, wolf indeed. That's the type of man he is. And when asked about his motivation for doing so, well, his reply was, well, I know that when I die, the Jews are going to rejoice. So I want to give them something to cry about. That's the type of guy we're dealing with here. And it's also shown in his family dynamic. Herod, throughout his entire reign, is constantly wrestling physically with his children, but also wrestling with the fear and anxiety of a revolution against him, losing his throne, losing his position. And as a result, he, he murders a ton of them. Three, three of his sons he kills. One of, his, one of his ten wives he kills. Yeah, ten wives. Oof. Right? His mother-in-law, which is, depending on your relationship, that might be, un- no, I don't know. <laughs> right? you know. It might be understandable. I wouldn't that joke. I just did. Right? But there's, there's an aspect where he's willing to kill off anyone who poses a threat to his power and his authority. And so when Jesus comes around the corner, when Jesus arrives on the scene, that's how he views Jesus as well. There's a really famous quote by Augustus Caesar uh, he was obviously, you know, the Caesar at the time of Herod, uh, saying that I'd rather be Herod's pig than one of his sons. Because at least in the Jewish culture, pigs were not going to get eaten. They were more likely to have a more fulfilling life than one of Herod's sons. That's the nature of Herod's character. So when Jesus comes on the scene, it's not as if it's just a child in, in, Herod's, in Herod's mind. Now, Herod has a very realistic perspective of who Jesus actually is. It says there in uh, verse 3 that when Herod heard, heard this, you know, the news about Jesus, he was disturbed. He was disturbed about the birth of a child. And the word for disturbed also translates to terrified. But he's afraid, fearful. And this is typical of Herod's reign. Herod hears the good news of the birth of Messiah. And because of his power-hungry, fearful, insecure nature, he filters the best news in the history of mankind as a threat to him. And guys, we have to be careful not to do the same. We can have the same posture in our heart that Herod has to Jesus. And what I mean by this is we can, we can have that rebellious nature. We, we can hear the words of the Bible, right? We can spend weeks, years reading every day. But ultimately, if our heart has a posture of rebelling against God, we're going to reject those words. How often has someone come to you brought a truth into your life, rebukes you. And you responded with anger. You responded defensively. You've counterattacked. And the reason we do that is because just like Herod, we want to preserve our authority, our throne. The good news of Jesus undermines our reign over our own lives. I think everyone here knows that, especially if you're a Christian. 
But knowing it intellectually does not necessarily mean you've connected it to your heart. So often someone brings good news and we respond, hey, no, that's wrong. That's not true of me. Because agreeing, connecting to that news, that harsh truth, will undermine your authority over your own life. I remember I was studying the Bible with this guy probably a year ago, roughly, and Sam was with him as well. And, and this guy was heavily Catholic. And obviously, as a Catholic, there were some doctrinal differences. And so we spent weeks and weeks studying with this guy. And there was no headway at all. It seemed like every, every doctrinal difference that we encountered, there was no willing to concede on his part, despite, no, no matter what the scriptures said. He professed with his mouth, yeah, I agree with the scriptures. But ultimately, when, when it came to crunch time, there was no concession. We spent five weeks like looking at infant baptism. And goodness, infant baptism should be the first doctrinal thing out the window. This... It, it, it's not contra- oh, it is controversial for some, but there's not a lot of biblical basis to, to, to support it. And so I spent a long time thinking to myself, why does this guy have such a hardened heart towards the scriptures? And honestly, it was only until I started reading to Herod that it kind of occurred to me, you know, almost a year later, that this small concession in an almost irrelevant area brought all the larger aspects of his faith and his belief into refutes. If he conceded grounds on a little area, he had to concede grounds on a large area. And that would, that would affect his entire identity as a Christian. We, go, we, go and say, we can't push against the truth of God. We can't rebel against it. That's what Herod does. And the irony of Herod pushing up or pushing against Jesus to preserve his own authority, his own throne, is that that authority came from God originally. Herod's fear of Jesus being a rebel ironically turns him into a rebel against God. Our desire to preserve our reign over our own lives puts us in rebellion against God. And that might sound harsh, especially if it's a, in, in small, minor areas. So, oh, yeah, I don't agree with this. I don't agree with that. But ultimately, the scriptures are the standard. And if our position is, no, that's not true. I'm going to push against it. I want to do what I want. Then you are defending your position and you're viewing Jesus as opposition. It's, guys, you don't want to be in opposition to Jesus, to God. It doesn't end well for us. And, uh, and once again, from this uh, same, the same, it's uh, funny if I haven't skipped to. <laughs> once again, there's, uh, there's this quote from um, uh, The Tale of Three Kings, and it really kind of epitomizes this idea of not trying to preserve your own throne. And the context behind this is um, it's about David and, and David's uh, response to an uprising of Absalom. And in uh, here, David says, Shall I defend my little realm in the name of God? Shall I throw spears, just like Saul, and plot and divide and kill men's spirits, if not their bodies, to protect my empire? I did not lift a finger to be made king, nor shall I do so to preserve the kingdom. Even the kingdom of God, God put me here. It is not my responsibility to, to take or keep authority. 
do you not realize it may be his will for these things to take place? If he chooses, God can protect and keep the kingdom even now. After all, it is his kingdom. And that, that final sentence, that's where it's at. It's God's kingdom. We establish our own little kingdoms. We sit on the throne, comfortable. Look at me. I am in control of my own life. What are, what are you doing? You, you aren't. Or more accurately, you have been. You've tried that. Did it work out? S submit your kingdom to God. Submit it fully to God. Amen? Amen. So that's the first perspective of Herod. Whoops, I totally hit the wrong button. And I got it back. All right, and so the second perspective I have here is of the religious rulers. And they view Jesus as, oh, they view it, sorry, indifferent. So the, the point I have here is they have indifference to Jesus' existence. And it says there in verse 4, When he had called together all the people's chiefs, priests, and teachers of the law, he asked them where the Messiah was to be born. In Bethlehem, in Judea, they replied, This is what the prophet has written. For you, Bethlehem, and the land of Judah, are by no means least among the rulers of Judah. For out of you will come a ruler who will shepherd my people. I mean, these guys are knowledgeable. These are the, the pinnacle of, uh, what's the right word, scriptural knowledge. They know, they know the Torah, they know the Bible, the scriptures, whatever you want to call it. They know it fully. They foresee where Jesus is going to be born. They advise Herod. They know it. But they don't really know it. Where are they during Jesus' birth? Are they in the manger? Chilling with the cows? No, where are they seen? Completely absent, indifferent. These are the people who know about Jesus, exactly where he's going to be. They're nowhere inside. I mean, if you think about if you really think about it, the Magi, who are Gentiles, non-religious people, they are present. But the most religious people in the land are nowhere to be seen. And guys, guys, there's a big warning in there for us. There's a big warning against being religious. Just because you know it doesn't mean you're really connecting to it. These people knew about Jesus. They, they're not there to witness the birth of the Messiah. One of the most significant moments in all history. They miss out on it. It's scary. It should scare us massively. It's, it says here in Matthew chapter 13. Oh, you have to turn there if you don't want to. Uh, verse 14, it says, In them is fulfilled the prophecy of Isaiah. And this is what it reminded me of. You will be ever hearing, but never understanding. You will, you will be ever seeing, but never really perceiving. For this, peop, for this people's heart has become calloused. They hardly hear with their ears, and they have closed their eyes. Otherwise, they might see with their eyes, hear with their ears, understand with their hearts, and turn, and I would heal them. And this is, this is so typical religious people. They know what they ought to be doing, but they still don't do it. They have become desensitized to Jesus. You should be asking yourself, am I desensitized to Jesus? Do you come here day or week after week at least? Year after year. Hopefully reading your Bible day after day. And you just grow accustomed to the word of God. Do you hear about Jesus and does it just go... 
It's another part of a daily routine. Because we don't want to miss Jesus. We don't want to miss the glorious moments that he has in store for us. And that's the risk, that's the risk we, we potentially face when we become calloused in our hearts. I have a, I have a really cool uh, story uh, which kind of demonstrates the indifference that we can potentially face. And uh, it, it's, it's of my nephew. And my nephew had his birthday probably earlier this year. And uh, as a good uncle would do, I bought him a gift. Uh, a little, like, toy car. I think it was a Hot Wheels. I don't know. I didn't really look at it too much. But um, I remember going to the birthday party uh, slightly late. Okay, this doesn't make me sound great. But slightly late. And I arrive and I see him playing with all his toys. He's already opened his presents. And lo and behold, I see him playing with this large version. Like a, I don't know, five, six times larger of the same car I bought him. <laughs> and I'm like, oh, goodness. This is terrible. But I still go up, I give him the gift, you know, I feel like a little bit, oh my god, uh, hopefully, and he's, he's five years old at this point as well, so I'm hoping he's like, he doesn't, he doesn't even care, he just opens up, amen, and moves on. But he opens it up, he takes one look at it, and it's like he's processing. He's looking at it, and he kind of looks behind him as well, his larger toy. And I guess at five years old, you know, you don't really have that ability, ability to fake liking a gift yet. <laughs> But he, at the same time, he doesn't have the words to express it. it, it it's not, I mean, I'm looking at his face. I, I don't see anger, and I, 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 don't see, I don't see sadness. I just see confusion. I'm like, oh, no. <laughs> Thanks, Adrian. <laughs> and, I, 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 and he didn't say it, but by his expression, and by the way he looked at me, he was like, dude, what are you even doing here? Yeah. And to top it off, he gives me the toy and says, oh, you can hold it for me. I'm like, oh. I'm like, okay, sweet. And so I took her home, I'll repackage it for Christmas. All right. All right. Maybe. All right. And we have to be careful. We, we receive in the ultimate gift of God in our eternal salvation, an unwarranted gift from God. We be careful not to give it straight back. I'm like, eh. There's better ones here. There's better, better ways for me to spend my time. Don't be indifferent to God. Accept the gift. Celebrate the gift. Rejoice. I feel like so often as Christians, we can, we can trudge through life. Oh, this huge burden on us. No, take the gift, nephew. Run with it. Right? Understand that the gift that God is offering us is comparably greater and bigger than anything we could possibly ever want possibly ever could desire it meets all our needs so then why are we so indifferent to it why do we hear about the good news and we just carry on as if it doesn't mean anything so ultimately have you been desensitized and there's, there's a few different reasons for why we might be desensitized okay I mean, maybe, I mean, maybe you feel like you no longer need a saviour. You've been a Christian long enough, you've done the good works, you've put in, put in the hard yards, done the correct acts, and you look at yourself now, I'm like, oh, you know what? I'm not so bad now. Five, ten years ago, yeah, that guy needed Jesus. Now, I'm not doing so badly. You don't realise your need for Jesus does not diminish throughout your life. 
And honestly, if that's the posture of your heart, like maybe I need him less, the irony is you need him more now. Or maybe it's because, maybe, maybe, maybe you have a, a desire for Jesus to be your savior. Amen, we all want a savior. We all want the loving, cuddly Jesus to help us out. But maybe you struggle with the idea of him being a lord of your life. And that causes us to be indifferent sometimes. Oh goodness, this scripture is calling me to, to, to a higher, a higher uh, standard. This scripture is, is, is looking at aspects of my life which I don't want to change. Oh, I'll ignore that scripture. This person is calling me out. I'll ignore that person. I mean, King Herod is willing to cut down his family to preserve his kingdom. You can't be the same. We have to be willing to have that influence in our lives, guys. And when I think of this, this uh, I guess, concept of wanting a savior but not Jesus as Lord, uh, Tozer, Aidan Tozer, who, I mean, you may be reading his book for, for midweek, uh, he, he has this uh, saying where he says, uh, the widely accepted concept that we humans can choose to accept Christ only because we need him as a savior and that we have the right to postpone our obedience to him as Lord as long as we want to do, want to. And what, what Tozer is saying here is that this is actually prevalent. This is something that pops up again and again. It's human nature. Like Herod, like Saul, we don't like to submit our rule over our lives. But we have to be willing to give it all up, just like David does. Because without giving it up, you don't, you don't get Jesus. You don't get to join him in the manger. You don't get to worship him, bring gifts. You don't get to have fellowship with him. And so just in conclusion to the sermon, just, just, just remember that these two, two postures of the heart are the same. You have Herod, who's willing to massacre anybody to retain his throne. And you have the religious leaders who are completely indifferent to Jesus. Ultimately, the roots of each of those hearts is a desire to be in control of your own life. Desire to be independent. Desire to build yourself up. And a desire which, if you're not careful, it, it leads down a, a very wide, but very dark road. Right? It leads to destruction. Just like it, it, it results for Herod as well. I mean, you have the Magi avoiding him at all costs. I would imagine that Herod's relationships with his family were not great. Be very awkward Christmas dinners. Hey, where's, where's this? Oh, you killed him. <laughs> you understand, guys, that the act of preserving our lives puts us in rebellion to God. Jesus and Herod are polar opposites. Herod is willing to take life to preserve his own life. Jesus gives up his life to preserve your life. Let that sink in. Uh, his life, and we do communion every... every Every week, let us sink in. Jesus, Jesus gives up his life to preserve your life. So how about I have a quick prayer, and then we can um, do some fellowship or something. I don't know. Heavenly Father, um, yeah, I just pray that we can yeah, just be willing to give up our throne, our little kingdoms, Lord, and to submit it fully to you. I pray, Lord, when we, when we read the good news, when we hear the good news of Jesus, Lord, our hearts are open and receptive, that we are not calloused. Lord, we aren't, we aren't always 
seeing but never perceiving, Lord. But I pray, Lord, we can fully embrace the knowledge of your truth and the goodness of your words, Lord. Uh, I pray, Lord, we aren't indifferent. That we, we can hear exactly what we need to hear and we can respond in the way which you demand we respond. That we can fall at your knees, Lord. At your feet, sorry. And just worship you. Worship you fully, Lord. And submit all the, all the pride, the ego that pushes us to rebellion against you. I pray like David, we can give up that kingdom and we can trust it fully that it is not even our kingdom to begin with, but it is all yours. Yours and yours alone, Lord. I pray this in your precious name. Amen.